Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, an unprecedented labor action is underway as thousands of Midwest auto workers working for the big three, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which used to be Chrysler, went on strike at the same time. Some things the workers are calling for sound familiar. A pay raise for workers that bears relation to those that owners have generously given themselves. Consideration of cost of living increases. And then other things they're calling for, a shorter work week, the elimination of tiered jobs where some people are just never on the track for benefits, and a seat at the table for workers in any conversations about climate-related economic transitions. Well, they sound downright visionary. It would be a critical story at any time, but right now, when every day brings news, like that of the Australian property owner Tim Gurner, who declared out loud in public, we need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40 to 50 percent, in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. Well, every day brings news like that, that the situation isn't about the economy working, but about for whom the economy is supposed to work. Unionized auto workers are saying profits, like the $21 billion the big three have declared in the first six months of this year, have to mean better conditions for the people doing the work. We can't afford it is a harder message for corporate news media to support as unions grow in strength and as people find other sources than the major outlets to look for explanations about what's happening. Lisa Shu is an organizer with Labor Notes. She's in Detroit right now. We'll talk with her about this historic UAW strike. That's coming up, but first, a look back at some recent press. NPR's Morning Edition, which the network promotes as giving listeners a deeper look at complicated stories, did rather the opposite of that in a recent report on the Biden administration's decision to supply Ukraine with controversial depleted uranium, or DU, anti-tank shells. As reported for FAIR.org by journalist Dave Lindorf, NPR had one source for a recent report, introduced as an expert on nuclear politics from SUNY Albany Center for Policy Research, which describes itself as having a long and notable history of managing and implementing grants and sponsored programs for the government of the U.S., including the Defense and State Departments and Homeland Security. The guest claimed that anti-tank rounds with depleted uranium are not nuclear or radioactive, but then did note without elaboration that there are some safety implications that need to be kept in mind. NPR could have told listeners that the Environmental Protection Agency's website states, quote, like the natural uranium ore, DU is radioactive, close quote. DU is a mix of U-238 and some other rarer uranium isotopes that are left after the fissionable U-235 that's used in nuclear bombs and as reactor fuel has been refined out. And all uranium isotopes are significant releasers of alpha particles as they decay, 
In other words, they're radioactive. If DU is ingested or inhaled, the EPA states, it is a serious health risk. Alpha particles directly affect living cells and can cause kidney damage. As Lindorf notes, single-source stories on complicated, controversial issues like this are just lazy. Maybe NPR did a better story at a different time, but many listeners will have heard just this one. And in this case, some commercial outlets ran deeper stories than NPR's supposedly public interest approach. Associated Press, for example, in an article by Tara Kopp, detailed U.S. use of DU weapons since Cold War days, including reports of deaths, cancer, and upsurges in birth defects that have sprung up in places where such weapons have been used in quantity. This information was left out of many other pieces on Biden's decision, including the one by NPR. AP didn't ignore the denials from the Pentagon about DU health risks. They were included, but it also uplifted other informed stakeholder perspectives, including those of U.S. troops who have questioned whether some of the ailments they now face, such as Gulf War syndrome, were caused by inhaling or being exposed to fragments after a munition was fired or their tanks were struck, damaging uranium-enhanced armor. Including sources is different from giving them credence. In a September 6th article reporting on the Ukraine DU decision, for example, the New York Times acknowledged controversy, saying, quote, some advocates have expressed concerns that prolonged exposure could cause illness or that spent ammunition could cause environmental contamination, close quote. However, the Times followed that up with the Pentagon says those fears are unfounded. And that's how you include a perspective and ignore it at the same time. Also, in not overlooked news, but overlooked connections, listeners know that Georgia's RICO, Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Law, modeled on the federal statute designed to attack mob bosses, has been in the paper a lot ever since Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis used that Georgia law to charge former President Trump and his associates with attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 election. But as Ari Paul wrote for FAIR.org, media hand-wringing about whether the RICO charges against Trump were a good idea, CNN, for instance, questioned whether they were too broad saying casting a wide net can also raise serious First Amendment issues. Well, when a new example arose of RICO being used to punish the powerless rather than the powerful, coming from not just the same state but from the very same grand jury, that kind of cautiousness was hard to find in corporate media. Georgia's RICO law was also invoked by Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr, when he targeted 61 opponents of the construction of Cop City, a sprawling police training center on the south side of Atlanta. The case against the protests alleges that protesters, some of whom have destroyed construction equipment, are engaged in a conspiracy to stop the complex's construction, likening even nonviolent political action commonly used across the political spectrum to the workings of the mafia. In addition to the RICO charges, prosecutors charged a bail fund with money laundering and others for domestic terrorism. The indictment calls the protesters militant anarchists. 
So it was natural for the Trump indictment to take center stage, but still corporate media have shown far less concern about the broadness of Georgia's RICO statute as it's been invoked with relation to Cop City. Many RICO explainer articles, for example, on the Trump case on NPR and CBS, mentioned that Georgia's RICO statute is broader and easier to prosecute than the federal statute. But the notion that this might play a role in the Cop City case was largely overlooked. The indictment of the forest defenders is an escalation of previous attacks on free speech, advocacy, and free association. So you might think that even more sweeping prosecutorial action would arouse more suspicion. An opinion piece in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution admitted that the RICO charges against the Cop City protesters were overly broad and thinly supported, but the piece seemed dismissive of First Amendment concerns. Quote, civil liberties groups are howling, saying the indictment is an affront to free speech, close quote. That was the paper's Bill Thorby. He then tossed in, so are the supporters of Trump and co. It's a lazy journalistic trick to lump Trump and social justice activists as two sides of the same extremist coin suggesting that some ill-defined centrism is the only legitimate political position. Anger against Cop City is growing, not just because of the political repression being used against activists, but because the project is the product of police militarization, incredible spending on security at the expense of other needed services, and the destruction of forest land. So with Georgia's RICO laws in the news because of Trump... The media should be connecting this law to the broad suppression of legitimate dissent in Atlanta, but they don't seem to be, at least not yet. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Listeners will know that members of United Auto Workers are on strike against the big three automakers, General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis, formerly Chrysler. Some elite media seem to be doing their darndest to fit this unprecedented action into old terms. ABC Nightly News delivered a textbook segment on the UAW threatening to expand its walkout, the things they're demanding, how the strike is already disrupting operations and idling workers, and closing on the note that economists are already looking for potential impacts on consumers, and if the action goes on, car prices will rise. It's a stuffy script, and... It's not really working. Many people inside and outside of organized labor feel something different in the air. More and more question the cartoonish gap between everyday people working hard but still struggling to survive and company owners asserting that profit rates prove they've earned their annual millions and the yachts that come with them. So all eyes are on the auto workers' strike for many reasons, all the more reason to think critically about the way news media report it to us. Lisa Shu is an organizer with Labor Notes. She joins us now by phone from Detroit. Welcome to Counterspin, Lisa Shu. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to talk about 
the feelings and energy and the people in this story because it's so crucial. But let's start, though, with some backdrop for the strike. It's not the whole UAW out at this point. It's a smaller group of workers in a few places. What, in general terms or specific terms, is the UAW calling for? And I mean, the whole union isn't out, but they're all ready to go, right? What's going on here? Yeah, no, thank you for that question. The UAW is calling this a stand-up strike in reference to the 1936-1937 Flint sit-down strikes, which really led to a massive expansion of the UAW over the next decade. And the strategy is kind of, as you described, currently about 13,000 members across three plants, one each at Ford, Solantis, and GM are out. The stand-up strike strategy is going to consist of escalation from there on out. UAW President Sean Fain, I think, had said this will be kind of just dependent on what happens at the bargaining table. And they've announced that tomorrow is another deadline and they're going to assess how well bargaining is going. If it's not going well, they're going to call out more workers. That deadline is noon tomorrow. In terms of what workers are asking for, this is really about clawing back concessions going back decades and reversing major decline in the standard of living for auto workers, a decline that many American workers have seen. You've probably heard about the demand for big wage increases, same as the wage increases the CEOs have given themselves, an end to wage and benefit tiers and the restoration of pensions and retiree health care to those hired after 2007. That's a major inequality existing within the UAW. And to long-term abuse of temp, a shorter work week, uh, 40 hours of pay for 32 hours of work, mm-hmm. and job security and protections against plant closures. And there's more, too, on the table. That, But that's kind of some of the bigger ones. Well, a number of those things are absolutely resonant, I'm sure, for people in any industry. The idea of a shorter work week, the idea of getting back concessions, things that workers gave up because they were told that companies were suffering. And now that companies are not suffering, somehow it's not time to give them back. I think a lot of those things have meaning outside of the auto industry. But I wanted to just lift up one thing, which is The UAW is really resisting the idea of tiered workers, the idea Mm -hmm. that there are temporary workers who are just on a lower tier where they're never going to get pensions or benefits. And I, I point to that just because it seems so refreshing to see a union really actively trying to get all workers to identify together. That seems to me like a great thing for building worker solidarity. Absolutely. And that's why workers across the big three, whether they're the so-called legacy workers, the first tier workers, or their second tier, they all recognize how much damage this has done to solidarity within the union. So there is a push across all these tiers to end tiers. And, you know, like you said, tiers are an issue affecting many other workplaces in the U.S. We saw the Teamsters and particularly pernicious form of tiers among UPS drivers earlier this summer. And yeah, it is really a big deal for exactly what you said, the strength of the union. Well, another 
element, and this could be a whole show, but let's just touch on it. I know that another piece of what the union is saying is, yes, they recognize there's a transition to electronic vehicles. They want that transition not to come at the cost of good jobs. And the labor versus the environment is such a perennial for news media. I wonder if you could just speak briefly to the idea that union auto workers are afraid of the future somehow, or that they're somehow opposed to adjustments to climate disruption. To get into the media critique portion of it, I mean, that's kind of like a sort of tired narrative, Mm -hmm. too. I mean, I think a lot of UAW auto workers recognize, I mean, just with the writing is on the wall when it comes to the EV transition. And now it's time for everyone pushing the EV transition, transition to clean energy economy, to live up to everything they've been saying about good paying union jobs. That part of it, they seem to have forgotten about. I think it's really as simple as that. It's just calling out that hypocrisy. You know, you said these would be good jobs. So where's where's the action now? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I'm going to bring you back to media in just a second. But I did want to say that you dug into a particular aspect of this in your work that can be kind of invisible or a little under the radar, which is the fact that the big three also operate. It's not just manufacturing plants. They operate these after-sales parts distribution centers. And those places, the companies were kind of setting them up for a strike. And you dug into that. What did you learn about these these parts distribution centers and their role? And, and what's interesting about that? Yeah, they don't get talked about very much. It was actually kind of hard to dig up information. So they're called parts distribution facilities. And that makes you think, oh, they supply parts for assembly plants. But no, it's actually these are spare parts for when you need a new door, when you get into a car accident, or you just need some kind of accessory. When the big three is selling them directly to dealerships, before the dealership applies any markups, the big three is actually applying a huge markup. I think this is another site of consumer price gouging for them. They've racked up these massive profits just operating these warehouses. And we think of them as making cars, not, you know, turning a profit on selling spare parts, it it turns out it's actually a significant moneymaker for them. An article I wrote, I dug up some statements that a former CEO of GM made about just how high these profit margins are and just how it generates billions of dollars of revenue for GM. And I I think it's the same for the other companies too. Just a sort of tentacle that you only find when you report on it. I mean, you highlight the fact that Unlike big plants, these distribution centers are often like smack in the middle of an urban area. So if they were to go on strike, it would look different. It would be an opportunity for the community to have it really up close and personal that these workers were on strike. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, so there is a map we published along with this article. I wouldn't say they're like downtown. Right, right, (laughs) right. You know, but they're within travel distance Mm -hmm. from like coastal cities that might not think of themselves as being near a big three facility. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a way for community outside of the Midwest to support workers should they walk out of these facilities. Community support, of course, can be key. And here, media play a role that determines how the story is presented to people who are outside of the industry, maybe people who've never been in a union or have personal knowledge of unions and who, yeah, might be 
late to work one day because of a picket line. So media play a big role in explaining mm-hmm. the validity, the importance, the issues at play here. You are also a reporter. What have you made of media coverage of this action? What would you like to see more of or less of? Yeah, well, I'm a new reporter, <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be fair. I was an organizer for five years. I'm new to reporting, but I'm bringing that same anger <laughs> from mm-hmm. organizing to it, to some of the media coverage we're seeing. Honestly, it's a little infuriating. <laughs> I'm sure you're, mm-hmm. you're familiar <laughs> with that. And, you know, you mentioned some of the ways in which through kind of like the rhetoric and the emphasis the media is kind of implying, this is a really bad thing for you, the the reader, the listener. But once you dig into that a little bit more, you're like, wait, who is it actually bad for, right? I've been sort of trying to tally up kind of all the sort of the boss's talking points that journalists and editors have decided to just run with Mm -hmm. very uncritically, whether they know it or not. So actually, prior to becoming an organizer, I was an economist. I come out of this world of like, of analysis that really has a pro-corporate slant. And a lot of people don't realize that it doesn't actually all add up. It's just kind of what they're taught. And it's just obviously the whole thing. It's designed to make you think anytime workers take action, it's kind of like they're the ones at fault. They're the ones causing trouble. Right. You know, a sort of, I don't know that it's a lack of general economic understanding. It does seem to be just the way media slant things. When corporate leaders are able to just say, as in this case, oh, we couldn't possibly afford to give workers what they're asking for here. I think one of them said, I forget which one, that would put us out of business. As a reporter, you just like type that up and put it out to the world, you know, when we know that like, I think it's $21 billion of profits in the first six months of this year from the big three, that just doesn't add up. You know, one great thing that's happening in the media, I'm sure you know, you probably talked about before, it's just the wave of unionization, right, Mm -hmm. among media workers and journalists. So I think there is now, like, more critical thinking out there. But, you know, there are a bunch of business reporters reporting on this, too. I mean, come on. Like, just look at the numbers. Do they really think this is true? And the UAW um, has been doing a great job of comparing numbers. Um, I actually, before this interview, dug up a chart that Sean Fain presented on one of his last Facebook lives, comparing the increase in the big three's North American profits, which went up 65%. This is over the last four years. CEO pay, which went up 40%. Stock buybacks, which went up 1,500%. And then you get down to UAW top wage rates. So not even the wage rates for second tier workers or temps, just the top wage rate. That went up 6%. And labor costs are only 4 to 5% per vehicle. And vehicle prices went up 34%. There's a lot of numbers, but just goes to show you, they're making choices. All corporations are making choices. And then collectively as a society, we're making choices about how much, basically what labor share of income is supposed to be. And apparently it's supposed to be very, very low. Right, right. Well, It's obvious that union activity is up, and we've seen reporting on that. But labor energy is also up. And it's not, I don't think, just because people are frustrated or frightened, though certainly many of us are, but 
unions seem to be different now. Um, Mm -hmm. They're doing different things. They're engaging workers in ways that are new. And I think folks are recognizing that. Am I misreading that? It seems to me that something new is happening. I think if you're on the ground and you're talking to workers, especially in these unions that are undergoing this like revitalization, I think it's definitely real. And I mean, you see it in new organizing too, right? With new unions that are being formed. It's real. And I think the really exciting thing about the big three strike is that I think both union leadership, the new reform leadership, and the rank and file, I think there's a feeling that they're making history, right? Not just within the context of the UAW, which would already be enormous, but labor history. (laughs) I don't think that's an overstatement. I think people really feel like there's something in the air, and especially with the kinds of the ambition of demands that are being raised. These are demands for the whole working class. Everyone knows it was unions that won the eight-hour workday. Now it's going to be up to unions to bring that back, right? Because people don't have eight-hour workdays anymore. So I think it's absolutely real. And sometimes that's hard to capture in the numbers, right? Sometimes it's kind of clear if, you know, if you're like on the shop floor or you're an organizer talking to a lot of workers every day. A writer at Four Labor Notes, Luis Feliz Leon, I heard say some time ago, solidarity needs to be experienced to be believed. I thought that was a really compelling comment. No, I think that's a great comment. I went through that myself, being in a union that like converted me. (laughs) And yeah, I do think it's hard for people who've never had that experience of workplace organizing to have faith in how transformative that can be, right? So Sean Fain is people who haven't heard it yet, gave this amazing speech on Facebook Live. A Jacobin did a transcript of it. This was last Wednesday on the eve of the strike, um, just talking about the role of faith, kind of asking, you know, union members to take that leap of faith and stand up in this historic moment. And it was just a very moving speech. He's Christian and he cited um, scripture from the Bible. And I'm not, but it was just very, very moving. And I think it it is about like, I think once you've had that transformative experience, you understand what workers can accomplish, you know, when they when they're organized. We've been speaking with Lisa Shu, organizer and reporter with Labor Notes. They're online at labornotes.org. Lisa Shu, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.